Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Mark's Gospel, um, chapter 14. <clears throat> That's where we'll begin. Um, this morning, we're going to look at the first communion in verses 22 uh, through 20, uh, to 25. I'm going to start off with a random statement. <clears throat> Blueberry cheesecake and first communion go together. Yes? How many yeses? No? I don't know about you, but perhaps some of you um, <clears throat> come from a background like me where um, you grew up, you um, completed catechism, and, uh, and then out of that you took your first communion. Um, I think I might have been about six years old uh, when I took my first communion, and um, what I remember from that time is Afterwards, after the church service, we had like a birthday party type of celebration at my house. And uh, for some reason, to this day, I remember that I had my first blueberry cheesecake. Um, it's just odd that that's in my mind. But uh, what we're going to look at here today in Mark's gospel is the actual very first communion, okay? And as the Lord Jesus Christ establishes for the disciples and for the church, and indeed for us, one of the most sacred ordinances or ceremonies in the church, and that is Holy Communion. In fact, there's two, two things that he, he told the church to do, and one of those was to baptize, and the other thing was to make sure you observe communion and to do it with regularity. <clears throat> so this morning, we're going to be talking about communion and then at the end of the service, we're going to be partaking of communion, um, as you know. And so what I'd like us to do right now is I'd like us to prepare our hearts, because to gather at the table of the Lord is an awesome thing. So would you please just join me in a word of prayer again? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to be in your presence. Lord, I know that there's many that aren't here this morning, and there's a really just nasty sickness going around, God, and it's been, well, we're still dealing with it in our family, and I know <clears throat> other families in the church are dealing with it, and uh, Lord, I just pray that you'd have mercy on, on the uh, folks in our church, Lord, that are dealing with this, and I pray that you'd give us quick remedy, Lord, quick healing from it, Lord. I think of even Pam that's not really dealing with this uh, this cold virus that's going around, but with diverticulitis, I pray, God, that you would give her quick recovery from that, Lord, as I know what that feels like as well, and, and um, I can just lay you up, God, and I just pray that you'd help her to get better from that. God, we thank you that you invite us regularly to your table, that we can have special communion with you, God. Um, that we can have special interaction with you, and I pray that we would experience that this morning. And um, I pray, God, that, you, that we would experience your presence in our lives this morning, and I pray that you would illuminate your word to us, Lord, as we focus on this area of um, this ordinance that you instituted for us of communion. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so when you come 
to Mark chapter 14. Um, I just want to remind us that this um, it's the last week of Jesus's life, and it's Thursday evening, and on Friday morning, he'll be crucified. So that's where we come to when we're at verse uh, 22 here on Thursday evening of that week. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. In a parallel passage in Luke 22, <clears throat> chapter, uh, well, chapter 22, verse 15, Jesus said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And literally, um, that could be translated, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover. Um, and I've mentioned before, when we were going through the Old Testament, that oftentimes when the writer is, is, is um, repeating Greek words like this, or, or even Hebrew words like this, he's putting an emphasis on it. And in other words, it's like what Jesus was saying is, I doubly desire to eat this Passover with you. Um, why? Why would Jesus be so desirous at this point of having this meal with his disciples? Well, in my understanding, it's because he is going to do something monumental at this moment in history. He is establishing a new covenant. Um, and this is a covenant that was uh, prophesied uh, many, many years ago through the prophet Jeremiah. Um, and at this point, Jesus is about to fulfill this new covenant. Um, that might not mean a whole lot to us if we were sitting there, right? Because we're Gentiles. But to um, his disciples who were Jewish, um, grew up in the Jewish religion, um, <clears throat> when Jesus said that he was going to establish a new covenant, it might have registered possibly in their heads um, because they may have been familiar with the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah. So to them, Jesus' words could have been very significant. Um, we don't really see Jesus go into great detail in the Gospels, actually, about the new covenant uh, versus the old Mosaic covenant. And I don't know if that's because he assumed that they caught on to what he was doing and that he was going to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah. But we can see from other New Testament passages how monumental what Jesus is establishing actually is and what the hearers in that room may have been understanding to some degree. So I am going to read um, from a couple other passages in the New Testament here to show just <clears throat> how monumental it is what Jesus is doing by establishing this new covenant. So I'm going to read from Hebrews 8, um, 6 through 13. And this is the uh, writer of Hebrews saying, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Talking about the new covenant. Since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant, talking about the Mosaic covenant, 
had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and this is where he's quoting from Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is growing obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. <clears throat> then we learn from Paul the good news about the new covenant, which is that it is a covenant that brings life, righteousness, and freedom versus the old covenant, which brought death and condemnation. And so I'm just going to read from 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 11, so we'll see what Paul writes about the new covenant. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And he's talking about the law that kills. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, talking about the law again, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face when he came down from the mountain, um, because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And then finally, I have one more verse because for people like us who would be Gentiles, I just wanted to share what Paul wrote to the Gentiles. And in the book of Galatians, okay, um, which were, were Gentile believers, but then Jews had come in and were trying to kind of like convert them and put, put these Jewish traditions on them. But this is what Paul says to them about the new covenant versus the old covenant. I'm going to read this from the Phillips translation. Um, <clears throat> um, Galatians 3 and Galatians 3. Everyone, however, who is involved in trying to keep the law's demands falls under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone which continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. It is clear that no one is justified in God's sight by obeying the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And the law is not a matter of faith at all, but of doing, as, for example, in the Scripture, 
he that doeth them shall live in them. Now Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by himself becoming a curse for us. For the scripture is plain, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. God's purpose is therefore plain, that the blessing given to Abraham might reach the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, and the promise of the Spirit might become ours by faith. Then I'm going to skip down to verse 21. Is the law then to be looked upon as a contradiction of the promises? Certainly not. For if there could have been a law which gave men spiritual life, then that law would have produced righteousness. But as things are, the Scripture has all men imprisoned under the power of sin, so that to men in such condition the promise might be given to all who believe in Jesus Christ. Before the coming of this faith, we were all imprisoned under the power of the law, with our only hope of deliverance, the faith that was to be shown to us. The law was like a strict tutor in charge of us until we went to the school of Christ and learned to be justified by faith in him. Once we have that faith, we are completely free from the tutor's authority. For now that you have faith in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. All of you who are baptized into Christ have put on the family likeness of Christ. Gone is the distinction between Jew and Greek, slave and free man, male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, you are true descendants of Abraham. You are true heirs of his promise. And that is monumental. And that's part of the new covenant. And that's why, in my understanding, Jesus doubly desired to eat that Passover meal with them. So at some point during the Passover meal, Jesus was establishing this new covenant with his disciples. And indeed, it extends to all of us. Now, I want us to look at Mark 14, but I want us to do it in the context of explaining what communion means. <clears throat> As Eric alluded to uh, earlier, uh, the reason we want to have some communion-focused messages throughout the year um, is so that we can teach, um, one, what communion means in our understanding of what the Bible teaches, um, and two, to clarify what we believe the Bible uh, teaches about communion for those who may have come from a background where they have understood communion to be something different than what we understand it to mean. Um, and a third thing is there may be some here that uh, come from a similar background, but communion has never been thoroughly explained. Uh, and what I mean by that is oftentimes uh, what people learn about communion is just from the five minutes that uh, something is shared before people take the bread and the cup, and, and nothing is really in-depth shared about um, what communion means. And so we miss much of what is intended and taught in Scripture um, for us to understand as we take the bread and as we take the cup in the presence of the Lord. So <clears throat> if you're taking notes today, um, I kind of have an outline. Um, to start with, communion is about remembrance, okay? Um, we know this because Jesus said it, okay? So if you want to write down 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 25, um, if you have Bibles, you'll have to flip fast. If you have phones, I know you can get there quickly, but I've got it right here on my page, so I'm not going to be flipping. So <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 25. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Remember, he's establishing a new covenant. He goes on to say, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So communion then is about remembering. And the word remembrance here, um, it's a very unique word. Um, it's not used that many times. Um, in the Greek, the word is anamnesis. And um, when it's used in the Old Testament, Greek, the Greek Old Testament, which is uh, called the Septuagint, um, it's actually used more in the context, not of us remembering God, but of rather God remembering us and um, that he's a God who remembers. And I point that out because our memories will fail, or will fail us. Um, but God is a God who remembers and his memory will never fail. Um, and I wanted to share this verse <clears throat> you don't have to turn there, I'll just share it, but it's from Exodus 20, 24. And uh, I found this verse when I was kind of studying and I was looking up uh, verses about God remembering. And um, it's in the Old Testament. And I think it will help us to understand even more clearly how communion is about remembering and why remembering has such a high value in God's estimation. So God is talking to Moses and the people at the mountain after delivering the Ten Commandments. And he says this in Exodus 20, 24. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Does God not cause his name to be remembered in communion? He absolutely does. And what I love about this is that God says, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And in communion, we experience his presence. He will come to us and we will experience his presence in communion. Not only does he want us to remember him and what he did for us during communion, he wants us to remember that he is a God who remembers. All that to say, as we remember him in communion this morning, God remembers each one of you this morning. Um, to be sure, we are remembering this morning the things that Jesus suffered on the cross. And that's why we sang these wonderful songs this morning. Um, we're remembering that he was raised from the dead. We're remembering that he is coming again. But we also need to remember that he is a God who remembers us. Um, and as we remember him on the cross, know that on the cross, he remembered you. On the cross, he remembered his plan for your creation. On the cross, he remembered his plan for your salvation. And on the cross, he remembered his plans for your glorification in heaven. All that on the cross, I mean, over 2,000 years ago. So at communion, we celebrate not only the things that we remember but we celebrate our God who remembers us. Can you remember that this morning? Um, so as we look further, 
There are three components to the remembrance that Scripture repeatedly brings out. Um, the first is the bread, the second is the cup, and the third is the coming kingdom. So if you're taking notes again, um, the first point is one, bread. Just number one and then bread. Um, so we're going to look at this in Mark 14.22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. The bread then that you and I are going to hold in a moment is a symbol of the body of Christ. <clears throat> now, when I say that, again, depending on where you're from and your background may determine how you view that. So I, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, and um, the Roman Catholic Church teaches a doctrine called transubstantiation. All right, it's a, it's a big word, right? I, I don't even think I knew what it meant when I was growing up, right? Um, and so what they say happens at the Eucharist, again, that's another word. Has anyone heard that word, Eucharist? Okay, so that word Eucharist is what they call it, um, comes from the word, it really just means the giving of thanks, okay? It comes from, in Luke 22, um, it's a Latin word, and it comes from the Gospel of Luke where Jesus broke the bread and gave thanks, okay? And they call it the Eucharist. But the Catholics believe that at the communion service, what happens is that in that moment, the bread becomes the actual body of Christ and the cup becomes the actual blood of Christ. We would say not so, okay? That what we are called to is not a physical eating of Christ, but rather a communion with Christ which I'll explain in a few minutes. So if you're from a Lutheran background, then you may be familiar with the Lutheran doctrine of consubstantiation, okay? Another big word, uh, which is that it is not the actual body and blood of Christ, but rather the spiritual body and blood of Christ. Again, that would not be our understanding of Scripture this morning. Um, we know that Jesus is talking figuratively here, and that should not bother us. Um, this is not the first time he's done this. Um, Jesus used many metaphors um, throughout his life, um, and I'll just name a few, okay? But there could, we could go through many of them. We went through a lot of them when we were going through the book of John. But Jesus said, I am the vine. And we know that when he said that, he wasn't saying that he was a plant. Um, Jesus said, I am the door. And of course, we know that he was not saying that he was physically a piece of lumber. Um, so when he was talking about this, he's talking figuratively as well in this, in this situation in Mark 14. Um, so when we hold the bread, what he is saying is you are in that moment participating in the body of Christ. And um, you guys might want to uh, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 10, because we'll spend some time in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> so in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, it says... The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation 
in the body of Christ. And that word participation, um, many of you might even know this because you might have heard this before. It's the Greek word koinonia, okay, which most of you will have heard this before that oftentimes it's translated the word fellowship. It's also uh, translated uh, conversation uh, in the New Testament. It's translated uh, communion in the sense of you're communing with a person that might be your really good friend and um, in a sense to where you just enjoy that person's company. And um, just their presence means a lot to you. You don't even have to transact words with the person. You're just communing with this really good friend. Um, it can also be translated as a distribution. So it's, it's translated in, in multiple ways in the New Testament. But when you and I are partaking of communion, there is an interaction with Christ that is unique, that doesn't happen in any other way. And, and I want to say that again. Um, when you and I are partaking of communion, there is an interaction with Christ that is unique, that doesn't happen in any other way. Because this is the only time where it talks about um, taking the bread and the cup. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Is it not a, a fellowship, a, a communion, a, a communing? Um, of course, we know we can experience God's presence in other ways, right? Um, we experience fellowship with Christ in other ways, you know, through the body. Um, but we need to understand that this participation in the body of Christ at the communion table it's unique in and of itself, and that in communion, we are interacting with Christ, we are communing with him, we are experiencing his presence in a way that's unique, in a way that you cannot have in any other setting other than communion. And that's why, you know, as, as a church, we believe that we want to have communion on a regular basis, and so we, we have it at least, at least once a month, um, because because of what I just said, because it's unique in experiencing God's presence. Um, so one quick sidebar before I move on um, <clears throat> about the meaning of the breaking of bread. Um, I think for a lot of years, you know, when I you hear the term breaking of bread, um, when I used to sit out there and, and I would reflect on uh, just, you know, kind of be in meditation during communion times, I would think of uh, Jesus's body broken for me, you know, uh, and um, I, would think of, I would think of that in terms of Jesus' Jesus's body broken on the cross. Um, but as I've gotten older, I've understood Scripture better, and um, Scripture is clear that his body was not broken on the cross, okay? Um, and John 19.36 says, these things happened so that the Scripture would be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Uh, God took care that none of his bones were broken on the cross. Um, of course, we know he went through extreme beatings. He went through extreme suffering um, and torture. But through all of that, none of his bones were broken. So in the communion, what it's talking about when it's talking about the breaking of his body, um, it has to do with the distribution of his life. Um, it has to do with what it says in Romans 5, through the one man, Jesus Christ, 
grace abounded to many, okay, as opposed to um, his body was broken in the sense of his bones were broken. Um, now, at this point in your notes, you still just have a one and bread, right? Okay, but now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you three subpoints to the bread, okay? These are three things that the bread speaks of, three things that are symbolized in the bread, okay? And, and I'm just going to say this is where it starts getting good. So, uh, so please pay attention. Because um, after explaining these three things, I hope that we have a better understanding of the breadth of what we are celebrating in the bread this morning. I was asking Troy, I always throw him trick questions, and, and he's like, oh, I feel like it's a trick question. So I asked him, like, you know, what's your understanding of communion? And I said, oh, don't worry about it. I'm going to explain it today. <clears throat> so, um, but the first thing is that the bread stands for his life lived for us, okay? And I'm going to back these up with verses, okay? So the first thing is that the bread stands for his life lived for us. 1 Corinthians 11, since you're already in Corinthians, you can just look over at 11, 23 through 24. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What he's talking about again is the distribution of his body and the one that goes out to the many. This is his life that was lived for us. Okay, his life that was for you. I mean, think about this for a minute, right? Okay, it could have happened like this. It could have been that one day Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit were up in heaven having a conversation and they looked down and said like, wow, it's a mess down there. What are we going to do about this? I mean, we got to do something about it. Those people can't save themselves and, and there's got to be a sacrifice. And then God says, you know what? I got a plan. How about this? Jesus, if you'd be willing to go down there, here's what we'll do. I'll send you down there on Thursday and then on Friday, you tell them who you are. They'll kill you on Friday. Um, I'll resurrect you on Sunday. We'll have you home by Monday. Um, why would that not work, right? Why, why didn't he just, you, you get the sacrifice, you get the payment for sins, you get all that, right? But why, why not? Why, why does Jesus have to spend 30 years in obscurity and then three years being mistreated, why does he have to surrender the prerogatives and privileges of deity to live in human form for 33 years on this earth? Here's why. Because the bread stands for his life lived for us. Because on the cross, for our sake, he... God the Father made him, Jesus the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He couldn't lay down a sinless life if he hadn't lived a sinless life. He couldn't have laid it down on our behalf if he had never lived it for himself. But the Bible says this, and I really like how this is captured in the Phillips translation again, when speaking of Jesus, it's in Hebrews 4.15, For ours is no high priest 
who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, he himself has shared fully in all our experience of temptation, except that he never sinned. And I love that phrase, in all our experience of temptation, because when I, think, when I see that phrase in that translation, it, it, it hits home with me because, I mean, all our experience of temptation, I mean, I hope that resonates with you because that's just everything that we face, you know, in this world, everything that, that hits us at all sides, right? Um, and yet Jesus also experienced all our experience of temptation, and yet he never said a bad word. He never thought a bad thought. He never did a bad deed because he was absolutely perfect. And he lived all 33 years of a sinless life. So here's what happened on the cross. The one who had no sin bore our sin. The one who was the perfect spotless lamb had our sin placed on him on the cross. Our evil, our shame, our wickedness and our failures. And when you put your faith in him, what happens is his righteous life is put on you. He took your unrighteousness and he gave you his righteousness so that when God looks at you, he sees you as righteous as Jesus. And that only happened because he was able to come live a sinless life. So he lived that righteous life for you and for me so that we could be clothed in his righteousness and have that righteous standing before God. So as you take that bread this morning, my question is, can you not celebrate that as you partake of the bread this morning? That's number one. Uh, number two is the second thing that the bread speaks of is his presence with us, okay? I'm not gonna go into great detail here because I've already alluded to this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Again, as you and I will be partaking of communion in a few moments, the only question I have is, do you look forward to communing uh, with the Lord Jesus as much as he has been looking forward to communing with you this morning? Because he knew that we were gonna do this this morning and he's been looking forward to it. So I hope you all have been looking forward to it as much as he has. Thirdly, this is number three under the bread. Um, what the bread speaks of and symbolizes, it reminds us of our relationship with each other. <clears throat> I'm going to spend a little more time on this one because um, this one is, is really, really important. Um, where do I get that from? 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. <clears throat> For we all partake of the one bread. <clears throat> so in that room, Jesus held the bread and he breaks it up. The bread symbolizes him. And each one of us, the disciples, got a part and a piece of him. And all of them put together was what? His body. Same thing here. What I, what I thought about doing um, today, but I, I didn't, um, but I just thought it would be a better word picture. I thought about seeing if, if the deacons, of, of just getting one loaf of bread and then having us pass a loaf of bread and each of us pulling a piece of bread off of that one loaf, just to show us 
this demonstration of that we all get a piece of this one loaf, but really it's one body, okay? It's, 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 we're all from one body of Christ. Um, the significance of what is being taught to us here from the Lord's actions in taking apart that one bread is that when we are partaking of communion in a local church setting, we are affirming our oneness with everyone around us. I'm going to say that again. The significance of what is being taught to us here from the Lord's actions is that when we are partaking of communion in a local church setting, we are affirming our oneness with everyone around us. We talk about a needed reminder to maintain unity in the body of Christ. Um, That when you and I are holding that bread, we have to consider, are we good with those around us? Um, or is there jealousy? Is there bitterness? Is there anger? Is there some kind of animosity going on? Because if so, you really need to take care of it before you take communion. What happened to the Corinthians is that they were coming into their communion gatherings and they were um, just thinking about, they weren't thinking about each other. Some were going hungry. They were at odds with each other. They weren't getting along, and they just went ahead and had their potluck dinner anyway and, and had their communion times. And here's what Paul said to them. And this is, this is very sobering. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine and 30. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. I think... I think sometimes when I used to read this, I used to think like, okay, I, um, I'm just kind of evaluating my own self, um, discerning, he who eats and drinks without discerning the body, like what sins have I been committing? God, please forgive me for these things. But really, when I, when, if you look at this in the context, the body he's talking about here, the body of Christ is the same Greek word he's using when Jesus said earlier, this is my body, And in my understanding, when he's talking about eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, it primarily has to do with us coming to the communion table while having unresolved differences with brothers and sisters in the church, because that's essentially a cancer to the body of Christ. And this is why Paul scolded the Corinthians. I mean... This is, this is really serious. Um, so yes, yes, we evaluate our lives. Yes, we try to get, you know, get our hearts right with the Lord. But primarily, are your hearts right with each other? Are, are, are your relationships good with each other? That, that is primarily in the context here of what Paul is scolding these Corinthians for. Um, Communion then becomes a time to do an inventory and to say, am I right with those around me? Remember, Jesus was the one who said in Matthew 5, 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 
So really, what I'm saying is a byproduct of communion is that it should be a way of unifying the church, um, really a way of cleansing the church and, and coming together and, and, and keeping that oneness um, that we should have with each other. Um, it should be a way of celebrating the church when we hold the bread and we look around and we say, Lord, what an amazing body of Christ. Um, may we be your body to this local area. We, we, may we be your light. We, may we be your hands and feet um, to this area of the world that you have put us in. But we don't want to be a sickly body. We don't want to be a body that has cancer growing in it, you know, or we won't be as effective a body as the Lord would want us to be. So those are all the things summed up and symbolized in the bread. Uh, one, his life lived for us. Two, his presence with us. And three, our relationship with each other. So then the second thing is the cup. So you have one bread, three subpoints. Number two, we're going to talk about the cup. Luke 22:20 20 says, And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So he establishes the new covenant. In 1 Corinthians, we read this, 1 Corinthians 11.25, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. <clears throat> so the cup symbolizes his blood shed to establish a new covenant with us. In other words, when you're holding the cup today, what you're holding is a cup that symbolizes the blood of Christ shed to establish a new covenant. Now, this is a good part. What kind of covenant are we talking about, right? What kind of covenant is this new covenant? We're talking about a covenant where God says, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Hebrews 10, 16. We're talking about a covenant where God says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more, Hebrews 8, 12. We're talking about a covenant that gives you the right. You know, in this day and age, people talk about their rights, right? We're talking about a covenant that gives you the right to be called God's son and God's daughter, John 1, 12. We're talking about a covenant that God guarantees by sealing it with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13. We're talking about a covenant that guarantees 24-7 access to the very presence of God, and we not only have access, but he invites us to draw near to his throne of grace, that we may receive grace and mercy in time of trouble, Hebrews 4.16. We're talking about a covenant that says, I'm not only going to be with you in this life, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and take you with me so that where I am, you can be also. John 14, 3. Can anyone say hallelujah for the cross? That's the covenant. And that is all in the cup. So as we take the cup today, think about those things. And I'm sure that I'm just scratching the surface of the new covenant. Um, in the A&I time, you guys can rejoice in the many more things that you can think of for the new covenant. Um, so think about those things we can celebrate when we take the cup this morning. So as we come into the presence of the Lord, we have the bread and we have the cup. And then the third thing is the thought of the coming kingdom.
um, the Lord's Prayer. He says, um, your kingdom come. Uh, Matthew 6.33, he says, seek first your kingdom and uh, his kingdom and his righteousness. And um, really, as followers of Christ, um, our hearts are to be that, Lord, may your kingdom come. May your rule be in this life and may you usher in the next. Um, I think the early believers, they were, they were eagerly looking forward to, to God's kingdom coming. Um, where do I get this from, this coming kingdom? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So realize that when you take that cup and you take that bread and you're partaking, you're not only saying, I believe you died for me and rose again, but you're also saying, I believe you're coming back. And that takes on tremendous meaning for us. Um, one, we know that that means Jesus is alive. Um, that means that uh, life is eternal. Um, but this is the part that's special, okay? Jesus said at that, at that first communion with his disciples in Mark 14, 25, he said, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Literally, in the Greek, and I looked this up, um, when he says, I will not, it's a very emphatic verb. He's really saying, I will never, never, no, I am not going to at all drink until that day. And what Jesus is saying is, I want you to do this, okay? I, I, I want you to be doing this. I want you to remember while you're here on the earth. I want you to do it together as a family. I want you to do it as my followers, but I'm not going to do it until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I'm not going to do it until we're all together. I'm not going to drink until we're all together in the kingdom. And, that, and that's special. We're going to do it as a family of God, but he's not going to drink it again until we're all together as a whole family. And, um, and so what you and I are doing, what we're saying when we take that bread and that cup is, this is just a tiny foretaste, a tiny glimpse of what it's going to be like when we're in the eternal kingdom with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we're gathered around the table of the Lord. Jesus talked about this in the Gospels. John talked about it in Revelation. <clears throat> you don't need to turn here, but I'm going to read Revelation 19, verse 7 through 9. It says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. So what we have at the communion table is we do reflect and, and have the solemnity of remembering his death for us, but you do have also the celebration of remembering our being gathered together in the kingdom. 
So praise God that the day is coming when we will gather round and we will feast in the kingdom of God and we will spend eternity with him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So if the ushers uh, would please come forward, I will uh, close this in prayer and um, we'll uh, celebrate communion together. Heavenly Father, um, just so thankful, God, for this record that you give us, Lord, of, of the first communion. Lord, I, I just, I'm astounded, God, that we are able to celebrate this today. And I'm thankful, God, for your grace and mercy that when we do this today, God, this has been going on for over 2,000 years. And in a way, we are, we're just, um, we're, we're not only participating in, the, in, in your body, we are affirming, um, we're affirming your death until you come with fellow believers throughout the centuries, God, who have come and gone, that have, Um, participated, Lord, in communion in remembrance of you. And, Lord, we're just so thankful um, that you have given us this to do and for um, what it means to us and um, to help us remember. Thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name.